Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. On the National Geographic survival show, The Great Human Race, archaeologist Bill Schindler travels to some of the world's most remote locations, living as our ancestors did 40,000 years ago. Today, we discuss what separates us from other animals and how thin the line is between life and death. If you're sleeping by yourself on the ground, one hyena may, I was told, eat your face off. But other than that, if you're awake, you're fine. But when you get to about 13 or 14, a female takes charge and then they become completely fearless. And we had actually reached that number. Also coming up, Alex I News makes instant ramen noodles from scratch and we bake up tomato alla focaccia. But first is my interview with Ron Fayola. He's visited hundreds of supper clubs all over Wisconsin to find out why this tradition is still alive and well. Ron, welcome to Milk Street. Oh, thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Uh, Wisconsin Supper Clubs. I never heard of these before. You know, in, in New England, we have hunting clubs where you have a game dinner in February or something. Uh, but these are something quite different. So what is a supper club? Well, a Wisconsin-style supper club is a place that's family-run, and the family often lives on the premises. They're known for their regular menus of Friday night fish fry, Saturday prime ribs, Sunday would be roasted chicken and ribs probably. And because it's family run, a lot of times 
He'll come up to the door and he'll say, close for a week, we're out hunting. So how did these get started? Was this sort of a speakeasy concept? It was about alcohol or how did, how did they get started? Well, actually, yeah, they got started in New York City, really, um, with speakeasies during Prohibition. I actually found a menu from uh, Golden Pheasant Supper Club in Lake Chautauqua, New York, and hmm. it was from 1925. But these places, in Wisconsin at least, were in remote locations where right. having something to drink was pretty easy to do. So Supper Club, uh, what does it look like inside? I, I have a, what I call my holy trinity of decorations is twinkly lights, some taxidermy, and dark <laughs> paneling on the walls. <laughs> and any one of those will be there, if not all three. All three. Uh, some of these clubs have a lot of history. John Dillinger, for example, uh, the Greenwood Supper Club, he used to hang out there. Are there. Any other places that have a lot of interesting American history to them? Absolutely. The funny thing is, when, you know, I, for the two books that I have out, each one has 50 supper clubs, and I've been to more than that. And I've always run into Al Capone was here. Al Capone was here. <laughs> and I've said the only person that's been to more supper clubs than me is Al Capone. But <laughs> you do see the trap doors right. behind the bar. And they all had those secret days of prohibition. These these were roadhouses and taverns and resorts and dance halls, you know, and they just kind of evolved into supper clubs over the course of time. So the trap door would be getting rid of the alcohol if there was a raid? Well, getting rid of the alcohol or just leaving altogether. <laughs> oh, that's even better. That's, uh, that's easier. <laughs> are there any dishes other than prime rib, et cetera, that are unique to these supper clubs, you know, sort of Wisconsin-centered dishes? Well, yeah. I mean, one of the most interesting things that I've found is shrimp Dijon, which is a recipe that came out of Chicago from the Palmer House, only exists in Wisconsin it's, it's shrimp dijong is kind of like a scampi. It's a, a casserole of shrimp with breadcrumbs and wine, butter, lots of butter and garlic. So you need some little antacid afterwards. <laughs> well, you can't go wrong with that, butter and shrimp. No. So let me ask you a question about you. You have been to a whole bunch of these. You've written two books about them. Why so much time and energy to record these living, you know, culinary memorabilia, if you will. Uh, what is it you just love about uh, Wisconsin supper clubs? I think the just the basic nature of a supper club. It's not, it's not a club. <laughs> you don't have to be a member. You, you know, it, it's the the hominess, the family atmosphere. Uh, you can sit at the bar and. You can say, what's your favorite fish fry? And suddenly the whole bar will be talking about fish fries. It's a very friendly atmosphere. There's a lot of regulars. So when you go there, are you thinking to yourself, I got there just before the end of an era? Or are you thinking there's new life in this? This is the, the next generation's going to adopt this concept and it's going to go on. Well, that's the hope is the next generation wants to adopt this and keep this going. And I think it's happening uh, that we're seeing younger people come to supper clubs. You know, they're, they're saying, when I was a kid, I came here and had the kitty cocktail, <laughs> you know. And now they're growing up and bringing their kids for kitty cocktails. Uh, Ron, thank you so much for being on Milk Street. Thanks for having me. 
That was Ron Fayola. He's a filmmaker, writer, and Wisconsin Supper Club expert. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will be answering a few of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Okay, Chris, before we get started, what is your all-time favorite carb? Can I say all of them? <laughs> no, or, or how about top three? No, I love carbs. I'm pro-carb. You, you never met a carb you didn't like? I never met a carb I did not like. Oh, come like. on, there's got to be a favorite. Right now, what would you love to eat? Uh, mashed potatoes. Huh. Me? Garlic bread. I, I love that, too. <laughs> okay. I love them all. <laughs> okay, let's take our call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Sarah Bates. How are you, and where are you calling from? I'm calling from Fallbrook, California. My question is this. First, my husband and I are pescatarians. That means we don't eat meat, but we eat fish and dairy products sometimes. So the use of bacon in recipes is always tough. I make the recipes, and I don't put the bacon in. And uh, I don't know really how much that changes the flavor. I guess it depends on the volume of bacon. And the second part is the same kind of thing with anchovies, except my husband is allergic to anchovies. So I always look at these recipes where the anchovies are added for the umami flavoring, and um, I'm looking for some alternatives. Well, the uh, one that a lot of people use around the world is just MSG. It's fairly pure glutamate. And a glutamate simply allows the sensors on your tongue to fully experience the flavor. It heightens the flavor of other ingredients. Oh. Other ingredients that have a lot of glutamates are cheese, like a Parmesan rind, which you can add to a soup or stew. Right. Tomato paste is very high in, in glutamates as well. If you go uh-huh. to almost anywhere in Asia and also in North Africa, MSG is just a fact of life. Everybody uses it all the time. But I just wanted to point out when you mentioned bacon, that bacon's also bringing smoke to the mix. So things that you could use in the place of bacon in recipes, not necessarily with fish, but in another recipe would be smoked cheese, smoked fish like smoked salmon, and also smoked Uh paprika. What bacon and anchovies also have in common besides umami, and you're right about the umami, is salt. So just make sure that your food is well-seasoned. So it sounds like on a regular basis, you're both suggesting a combination perhaps of salt and uh, MSG, depending on the recipe. Yeah, Yeah, or or reaching for ingredients like tomato paste, like Parmesan rind, like dried mushrooms. Carrots even have umami, believe it or not. the, the, The simple solution is MSG because glutamates, which is monosodium glutamate, glutamates simply enhance the other flavors in the dish. That's right. what they do. Right. They don't have a flavor in and of themselves. So it's not like you have a meaty uh-huh. flavor. It, it's really enhancing the other flavors. So that's really the simple solution. You can use those other ingredients when appropriate. Right. But MSG, I think, should be in your pantry. You know, billions of people around the world use it. So Is it in your pantry? Yes, sure. Well, thank you both very much. I appreciate the response. Yeah, okay. my pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, I'm Mike in Sacramento, the jewel of Sacramento County. Oh, well, okay then. (laughs) How can we help you today? I'm a stay-at-home dad. Um, I 
like to feed my toddler a uh, banana and steel cut oats every morning. And I like to get the bananas fully ripened before using them so they're at peak tasty. However, if I leave them on the bunch to that level, all of the bananas are nice and ripe. But if I peel one, if I pull one off the bunch, oftentimes I'll like pair some of the other ones. And so now I have to eat more bananas than just one. And that's a problem. So I've taken to cutting them off of the bunch as soon as I get them home. And that's made me wonder, why don't they just sell them just by the banana? Why do they sell them by the bunch anyway? Is there anything wrong with just having a single banana by itself? (laughs) Well, it's like selling an album versus a song. I think it has to do with the fact that they really wouldn't make any money. I mean, mean, you'll find a single banana, say, in a deli or if you go buy yourself a sandwich. But I just don't think it's not cost-effective. My husband eats a banana on his oatmeal every single morning also, by the way. But he'll only buy three or four at a time for the same problem that you're having, which is they ripen too much. But, you know, they do perfectly well in the refrigerator. And so when you see that they're beginning to ripen, which means little tiny brown spots, you know, just pop them in the fridge and then get to them a few days later. They also freeze beautifully. Uh, well, especially for my purposes, yeah, because it makes them nice and mushy, which is what I need. So yeah. Just mixing them into oatmeal. I have the same problem you do because I'm the buyer of the bananas. They have them all hung up together, and I have to separate off four. And if you do it carefully, you can get three or four at one fell swoop. It's not a problem. You know, and then just know you can put them in the fridge and know you can put them in the freezer, and, and you'll have it under control. Chris? <laughs> you guys are thinking about this all wrong. Look, the reason they sell them in bunches is they make so much more money. Because if you buy a bunch of six bananas or eight bananas, half of them get thrown out by the time you get around to them because they're oh, overripe. Oh, no, that's oh, yes. not why but they're my, my doing guess is 30%, it. That's 30% of all bananas never get eaten. If they sold them individually, people would buy fewer bananas. I look for the singles because I feel like... I'm saving the little orphan bananas. I do have a question for you. You know, with my kids, I buy the small bananas. If you oh, can those get are those, so cute. they're about half I love the size. Those. I find the smaller ones are really great because you can use two of them at a time if you like, but you end up throwing out fewer bananas. Well, we should not be throwing out any food. Period. End of sentence. Buy little bananas. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. All right. There we go. The banana. The banana problem. Conundrum. Conundrum. Okay. Yes. Take care. All Thanks right, for Mike. calling. Thanks, guys. Okay. Bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a call at 855-426-9843. That number, one more time, is 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MillStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi there. This is Joey in Phoenix. Hi, Joey in Phoenix. How can we help you today? Uh, well, it's a pleasure to speak with you. I just got married two Ooh, weeks congrats, ago. congrats. Congrats. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I got some awesome gifts for the kitchen, one of which is a set of all-clad pans. Woo! Well, I thought you were going to ask us about marriage. <laughs> I, it's only been two weeks, though. We'll get back to the cookware. Okay. All-clad set? Yeah, so I got an all-clad set, but I almost always cook on cast-iron pans. I've been cooking on them for years. I'm trying to figure out you know, how you decide what to cook with which pans. The pots are great, um, but on the pans, the only thing I've figured out what to cook is omelets. I really wanted to hear from you guys how you decide what to cook when. What kind of all-clad pans did you get? Because there's many different kinds. It's the tri-bonded ones. I think they're the aluminum in the middle. Is that right? That's right. They have stainless steel on the outside and aluminum core. Right. I'm going to go first, but Chris would probably tell you to use your cast iron skillet for everything that you would use a skillet for. 
And I would say when you've got a tomato sauce or something, maybe reach for the all-clad because it's not going to react or something else that's somewhat acidic. So that's one way to go. I'm interested. You already said that it's better for omelets. Yeah, eggs don't seem to go super well in a cat's iron pan, right? The all-clad is not nonstick. It's regular stainless steel interior. Right. Chris, are you going to just tell him to use his cast iron for everything? Throw everything out and get carbon stuff. No, look, uh, (laughs) cast iron's great. Cast iron takes time to heat up. It's great for holding heat. So if you need to cook a steak or distribute a lot of heat over time, it's great for that. The all-clad will heat up faster probably, which is great. One thing is it's a light-colored interior, so you can see things cooking more easily against the black interior, which I think sometimes is helpful. For the eggs, though, stainless steel is not great. I would invest in a $20, 8-inch carbon steel pan. Uh, That's what I use. I use it three times a week and just season it properly, keep it seasoned, and that's nonstick. It's terrific. Do you have the equivalent of a Dutch oven, like a big sort of casserole pot in your Yeah, set? I have that as well, and I have a grill. I'm pretty well You're set, all set up now, I think. I just, You're all set. The all glad pans are so beautiful. They look so good in pictures. I wanted to <laughs> figure out how to use them better. Well, the saucepans, as Sarah said, the three- and four-quart saucepans are terrific. That's what you probably use the most. How about tomato sauce? No, I, I would put acidic ingredients in all stainless clean. steel. Yeah. Okay. okay, so all of the super acidic stuff in stainless steel... And it sounds like keep using the cast irons mostly. Yeah, and just buy that carbon steel 8-inch pan for 17 bucks, and you're good to go. All right, perfect. All right. Okay. Well, thank you guys so yeah. much. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Congrats and, on getting uh, married. I'll call yeah. back for marriage advice, I suppose. <laughs> okay. okay. All right, Joey. Thank, thank you. you. All right, thanks, guys. Take care. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we hear from experimental archaeologist Bill Schindler about the survival tactics and dietary habits of our ancestors. That's coming up after this break. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash boast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mostly Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
Right now, it's anthropologist and archaeologist Bill Schindler who's traveled around the world to experience firsthand how our ancestors survived the unknown. His National Geographic show is called The Great Human Race. Bill, welcome to Milk Street. My pleasure to be here. Thank you, Chris. You're an experimental archaeologist. Exactly what does that mean? That's a great question. So I'm by training both a prehistoric archaeologist, which means my focus is on the prehistoric archaeological record, anything before the written record, obviously. And the experimental archaeology part of it is sort of a subfield where I, I've been trained by experts around the world in all sorts of primitive technologies, ancient stone tool technology, prehistoric ceramics, uh, ancient fibers, those sorts of things. And what I do is I test hypotheses about the archaeological record and about life in the past by implementing these primitive technologies to replicate uh, ancient stone tools, ancient ceramics, and use them and, and understand how they were made, how they functioned, and how efficient they were. So on your show, The Great Human Race on National Geographic, you go somewhere for seven or eight days, different places in the world, and live as if it was you know prehistoric 40,000 years ago. Um, during those periods, were you able to really learn something useful by having to put those skills into use for real, or is it really more of a show? I absolutely got a ton out of this. Now, we, certainly the focus for the show was to portray to the viewer what life would have been like in the past. But for me, it was a, a, a major educational experience on a lot of levels. So, of course, you know, seven or eight days is not the amount of time that I would have starved to death. It's long enough to be scared. It's long enough to be hungry. And it's long enough to get very cold, as you were in Siberia, I think. <laughs> um, there's one show where a lion has brought down a kill. You have a, a half-eaten carcass. You're trying to grab some meat. I would think with lions around with a carcass, that would be a fairly, I mean, actually dangerous situation. Was that actually a dangerous situation? What you saw on that screen was what was happening in in real life for us while we were there. So we ran in. We had, at that point we were several days into into filming this first episode, and I was probably hungrier than I have been in my entire life. And all of a sudden, this carcass is there. I had a stone tool in my hand, and what we were representing there was actually what our ancestors had been doing three and a half million and two and a half million years ago, where they weren't hunting, but they were accessing meat with stone tools from scavenged kills that another animal had, had killed. And, you know, we got some meat, but we also took some marrow with us. And that marrow, I love roasted marrow. Raw marrow is a completely different thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, th th this, this is what I like to equate it to. I, my students asked me what it was like when I came back, the raw marrow. And I said, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you're about to go to the dentist and you've realized you haven't flossed your teeth in a year, so you floss real quick, but your gums aren't used to it because you haven't flossed in a year, so your gums are bleeding. Well, if you were in that situation and you walk downstairs, open the fridge, and take a bite out of a cold stick of butter, that's exactly the experience <laughs> with eating cold marrow. Charming. Um, so uh, were there any moments in the show where you actually were seriously afraid, where your life was at risk? Well, the two most dangerous moments dur during the entire filming, uh, the first one was there was a scene in uh, the second episode. We were in Uganda. We had used stone tools to cut a bunch of thorny acacia and made sort of a ad hoc fence around us and uh, had a huge fire in the middle. And we were up all night tending this fire and hyenas came in. Mm -hmm. And it, it turns out that 
one hyena isn't that dangerous. If you're sleeping by yourself on the ground, one hyena may, I was told, eat your face off. But other than that, if you're awake, you're fine. Um, but when you get to about 13 or 14, a female takes charge and then they become completely fearless. And we had actually reached that number. Uh, and and we, I could see them in a shadow passing around the light of the fire around this acacia thorn fence, which wasn't very thick. And the only thing that saved us that night was a, a male lion. All of a sudden, the hyenas take off, and we looked up in the distance, and we could see a male lion coming in, and it scared them, and obviously almost scared us off, and it finally turned around and walked away. But that was the hmm. moment that I was scared the most. But believe it or not, the most danger I believe I was actually in was in Oregon, and I was in a dugout canoe for a large part of that episode. And in at one moment, I had I was trying to bring this huge log to beach it, and I got swamped. And I was in the water for quite some time, and I was I was severely hypothermic. So believe it or not, the you know the most dangerous moment I was from being all over the world was in Oregon, <laughs> right off the coast, <laughs> getting swamped and hypothermic. Um, so uh, let's go to your premise, your fundamental premise, one of them. Which sure. is that our diets 40,000 years ago were better than they are today. And at first I was thinking about this and going like, well, I don't know if that makes sense. But I looked it up. 40,000 years ago, European males were six feet high uh, on average. And 10,000 years ago after uh, farming came along, we were five foot four inches high. So which I think speaks to your point that before agriculture uh, and settled society, we actually, I guess, were healthier. Is that is that part of your premise here? It, it is. You know, my, my premise in general is not necessarily just that diets were healthier, but more so our approach to diets were healthier. So, and and this is this is what it all stands on. I wholeheartedly believe that humans are one of the weakest species on the planet, and we have one of the least efficient digestive tracts on the planet. And if those two things are even partially true, and I believe they are, it uh, relates directly to, uh, to diet and health. So if you think about it, if, if and, and this is sort of that survival situation scenario, if I stripped any, I don't care if it was Bear Grylls, the leading survival expert in the world, knew every plant, and, I, and stripped you down naked and put you outside and said, eat, we could not feed these bodies. Our nails are not that efficient. Our teeth are not that efficient. We're not that strong. We're not that fast. We can't fly. We can't swim very well. We can't even dig into the ground very well. So our ability to extract resources from our environment is severely compromised. And even when we can get those resources, our digestive tracts are so incredibly inefficient that we have a terribly difficult time safely deriving the nutrition from those resources and making use of it in our bodies. And where that becomes important is beginning three and a half million years ago, we developed the first stone tool. And it doesn't sound like it's a very big deal, you know, banging two rocks together, making gravel. But think about what happened at that moment. When one of our Australopithecine ancestors struck two of the right kind of rocks together, they produced in less than a second a durable sharp edge, a durable sharp edge that's stronger and sharper than anything we have on our body and completely transformed our relationship with our environment and our food from that point forward. So from stone tools to hunting technology to fire to fermentation, what our technologies in the past were always focused on was to make food safe, nutrient-dense, and bioavailable. And our, our diets were built on the technologies that allowed us to do that, and our bodies 
uh, were built on that and our culture was built on that. So in effect, we started to domesticate ourselves three and a half million years ago. Today, we process food for other reasons. In fact, we process food that are at the expense of nutrients. And for the first time ever in the history of this planet, we can not only create obesity, but we can create obesity and malnutrition in the same individual. That means that the modern food system is such a failure that we are creating such nutrient-free food that you can eat so much that you're obese and still not get enough nutrition to fuel our bodies. If I asked you about raw milk, what would you say? I would say good raw milk is a, is a fantastic food. Good raw milk that has been fermented is not only an incredibly nutritious food, but it's safer for adult humans to consume. It is more bioavailable and is more nutrient dense for adult humans to consume. And on top of that, through the fermentation process, we create flavors and smells and textures that we really, really enjoy. So yogurts and kefirs and, and, and cheeses. You know, we have been drinking as, as adult humans milk from other animals for at least 10,000 years, and we've been making cheese for at least 8,000 years. Could you just explain how we got started in making cheese, how it works? You, you also mentioned the vessel in which we make cheese to be similar to the stomach of an unweaned animal, which I like. Uh, <laughs> so could you just explain how that works? Sure. And here's the issue with humans and milk. Uh, when we drink milk as, as an infant, and all mammals do this, when they, when they drink it, when the milk goes into our stomach, immediately it gets hit with several different enzymes. One of the enzymes is lipase, which begins to break down the fat. One of the enzymes is lactase, which begins to break down the sugars. And one of the enzymes is chymosin, which coagulates the milk. And the reason that it coagulates the milk is because if we're taking in just liquids, liquids pass through our digestive tracts entirely too fast. Nature has figured out that if we slow it down, we, it'll sit there, it'll ferment, we can mechanically and physically break it down and then into its components and then into a state that our body can absorb the nutrients and then it'll sit there a little bit longer for our bodies to actually make the most use of those nutrients. That's a fantastic system. When we begin to eat solid food, we cease the production of chymosin. So this chymosin coagulates the milk, right? So in essence, babies are making cheese in their stomach, including human babies. So when you pick up a baby and, and, and put it on your shoulder and, and the, it burps up on your, on your shoulder and what comes out looks like cottage cheese and smells like provolone, it is. Huh. It's exactly what it is. <laughs> is your interest in this purely scientific or do you really think you've been born into the wrong century? No, you know, I have certainly had those, those fantasies of, of truly stepping back in time. But to, to be completely honest, my interest in this is, is actually purely about my family and my students and the people around me that I can, that I can impact. Um, I, this is, the, in my mind, the, the, the perfect time to be living. We can gain incredible and very valuable information and inspiration from the past, we can, and the very, very deep past, we can get incredible inspiration information from traditional groups that are, that are living around the world today. We can combine that with modern nutritional science, uh, modern culinary arts, and create a food system that is sustainable and nutritious like we've never known before. We just have to really appreciate what we've done in the past to, to, to set the stage for that to happen. Bill, it's been an enormous pleasure having you on Mill Street. Thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure as well. That was Bill Schindler. He's the director of Washington College's Eastern Shore Food Lab, also co-host of National Geographic's The Great Human Race. 
You know, humans are fascinated by time travel, returning to the past for adventure and also exploration. But I wonder what Paleolithic man would think about 21st century life. Emergency rooms, the iPhone, transportation, supermarkets, central heating, and the Amazon Echo. Would this be nirvana or maybe it's hell? We've forsaken community, mythology, and personal meaning for comfort and entertainment. Yet a steak dinner 40,000 years ago started with a hunt, not a trip to the meat counter. So, all in all, I would love to roast meat over a campfire as long as I also had antibiotics and a washing machine. I guess we just want to have it all. It's time to head into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, tomato olive focaccia. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. So you've been traveling again, this time to Italy. Yes. Uh, and you were talking about focaccia. Now, what is there left to say about focaccia? Well, I know I've done this recipe a few times. You've mm-hmm. probably done it. But you came across something a little bit unusual. Yeah, I didn't think there was anything left to say about focaccia. And I'm not a huge fan of focaccia, to be honest, because most of the focaccia I've had tends to be kind of heavy, a little bit dense, not that interesting. Well, I was in Bari, which is a town in Puglia, the heel of the Italian boot, and I went into this place called Panificio Fiore, which, unbeknownst to me at the time, had recently been named the top focaccia in all of Italy. Now, that's saying something. The guy gives me a massive hunk of this freshly baked focaccia, and I bite into it, and it blew me away with the differentiation of texture and flavor across this just slab of dough. It didn't outwardly seem all that interesting. The bottom of it was crisp, almost crackling. The inside was airy. The Hmm. top was chewy. It was all this incredible flavor on the top. There were crushed tomatoes and green olives, and it was such a totally different take on focaccia. I couldn't believe how good it was. Now, is this thicker than the usual fairly thin it layer a, of focaccia? Yeah, it was about a good inch and a half to two inches. And I mean, it was, it was a substantial hunk of focaccia, but it was very satisfying. So what's the secret? Is this about the amount of water? Is this the yeast? Is how it's made and fermented? How is so it's all about doing too much of everything we think. There's tons of olive oil, tons of thyme, and tons of water. So the owner, Antonio Fiore, brought me in the back room to show me how he made it. And the first thing that struck me is that they are dumping the dough that's been rising out of these essentially trash cans onto a a big table. And the dough is pouring almost like a liquid. So very high hydration level. Yes, very high. In fact, you know, a standard focaccia is about 56% water to weight of flour. I realized later that Antonio was using almost 90%. I mean, so a very, very wet dough. So that was the first thing that obviously differentiates his focaccia from from the standard focaccia. The other thing was the amount of time that he lets it rise. Now, understand that his kitchen is cranking very, very hot because he has a massive wood-fired oven in there. And then he's cooking it at 600 degrees. So he lets it rise for about four hours, which is... A long time. Yes, it's a very long time, which also explains why the dough almost looked blown out. It had risen, it had fallen, it had risen again. It it looked deflated almost. Uh, The other thing is they take this now deflated dough almost and they throw it into these metal pans with a ton of olive oil. I mean, like enough olive oil that is sloshing up the sides of the (laughs) dough. (laughs) And, And again, it all looks like too much, too much time, too much water, too much oil. And then they pop it in that oven, and it came out amazing. That oil is what accounts for that crispy, crackling bottom. And the water 
and the thyme that it rises for account for that chewy, airy texture on the inside. It really blew me away. So we don't have a 600-degree oven, so were there any major changes you had to make to the recipe once we came back here? You know, the biggest thing we had to change was the amount of time that we let it rise. You know, his kitchen is very warm because of the wood-fired oven. He was able to let it over-rise, over-proof, essentially, in about four hours. We found we needed to let it go for about six hours to get the same reaction. But beyond that, the recipe was mostly the same. And, you know, his ingredients were flour, water, you know, salt, all oil, yeast. I mean, very classic stuff. So it was a very easy recipe to adapt. So in other words, you broke all the rules. Yes. Too much water and too much time. Yes. And you ended up with a better focaccia. Absolutely. JM, thank you. This is tomato olive focaccia from the boot of Italy. A very unusual recipe, but the best in Italy. Thank you. Thank you. You can get this recipe for tomato olive focaccia at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we chat with Alex Inews about how and why he made instant ramen noodles from scratch. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com slash tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Next up, Sarah Malt and I will take on a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Ellen, and I'm calling from Blacksburg, Virginia. Hi, Ellen. How can we help you today? Well, I'd like for you to show me that you can cut the mustard by teaching me how to make the mustard. Okay. And what kind of mustard are we (laughs) talking about? We need a drum roll here. We need a little fanfare. (laughs) What kind of mustard do you like? Um, Well, I grew up with French's bright yellow mustard, but now I like more grainy and tangy mustards. Right. And... I noticed that all the mustards that I like have simple ingredients, uh, basically mustard seeds, usually vinegar, water, and salt. My first try, though, turned out way too spicy and kind of bitter. So I thought I'd get some tips from you guys. Well, let me ask you what you did on your first try. Basically, I ground some mustard seeds, and I used a grain grinder instead of a mortar and pestle or spice grinder. And the mustard seeds also might have been a little bit old. I'm not sure how old they were. And then I added to that some apple cider vinegar, a couple tablespoons of water, and some sea salt. I let it sit, and it actually got a little bit better by the second day, but then it still got thrown out because it was still too Too bitter. bitter. Okay. Well, let me just, a few things. First of all, the yellow mustard seeds are far less uh, strong in mustard flavor. The brown and the black are probably more what you're looking for, or you could do a mix of the two. They're more robust in flavor. 
And they okay. really do nothing until you combine them with liquid. So what a good idea is to soak them in some liquid, uh, whether it be straight water or some vinegar for, you know, overnight or a couple days. And then um, to go through the grinding that you did, then grind them up and they will be bitter and it will be very hot. So you do have to let it sit for a couple of days and it will mellow and that bitterness will, you know, go down. Um, but you need to start them out by soaking them in cold liquid, not hot liquid. What is yellow mustard powder? I used to use that all the time with water as a paste. Well, there's Coleman mustard powder. Yeah, Coleman mustard powder. But then there's also mustard powder, which doesn't have a lot of mustard flavor as compared to Coleman's. Yeah, some recipes actually call for ground mustard seeds as well as yellow mustard powder. Which helps, and also... helps to thicken it. Oh, okay. What, you're, what I, we just described is going to be a pretty loose texture. Ellen, I applaud this, that you're doing this, and please report back. I will do that. Thank you. And you're doing it for us, by the way. Just remember that. Okay? <laughs> yes, okay. So we don't have to. <laughs> right. Thank okay. you, Ellen. Take I think care. it's actually very simple. <laughs> I think it is, but let Ellen do it and okay, tell us Ellen, if it was you worth do it. it. Yes, okay. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks, Ellen. Okay, Thanks. I will, Bye. I will report back. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Oh, this is George Lindhart from Jackson, Wyoming. How can we help you? We now live at altitude, about uh-huh. 6,000 feet, and things that worked before don't work here. Simple things like um, trying to make a panna cotta. I've tried increasing the, the amount of gelatin or trying to make sure I get it a little hotter, but it never sets. When you add the gelatin, are you adding it mm-hmm. on top of the dairy, the cream, or whatever you're using as it comes out of the fridge and then slowly heating it up just to dissolve it? Or, or how hot is the uh, liquid? Oh, um, I don't get it above... Um, 130 or 140 oh, degrees. The materials okay. are usually at room temperature. Right. I put the gelatin in. I would first slowly warm the milk up right. and then add the gelatin into it and then try to blend the milk and the cream together until it's all smooth. And then. Have you tried putting the, sprinkle the gelatin on the cold milk? Letting it sit for about five minutes yeah, till it, it starts to dissolve and it, it changes into a gel, and then heating it slowly. Have you done that? No, I thought I would try to dissolve it first rather than just. No, you you, you have to start by sprinkling gelatin on the liquid. Gelatin has to first be dissolved yeah, in then, a cold liquid, and then you heat it slowly, uh, and then stir it just for oh. three or four minutes to get it to fully dissolve in the liquid. But you start with cold water, milk, or whatever it is, right? Yes, absolutely. So I think that's the step that you're missing. Well, the other possibility is he's living in a haunted house. You know, that that would, nothing seems to (laughs) work the way it used to before you moved in. Well, we certainly know it's a challenge to be at a high altitude, but a panna cotta should work. And I think the problem is, I think Chris and I agree, that you need to soak the gelatin, sprinkle it on some cold liquid and let it dissolve, let it sit. But let me just also recommend something to you. There's a wonderful book called Pie in the Sky, it's a great book about baking at high altitude, and you might want to pick it up. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. All yeah, right. thanks, George. Thank you. Thanks for calling. You have a good one. Yeah, All you right. too. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a cooking question or any other question, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That number, once again, is 855-426-9843, or simply email us at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, Sarah. This is Rosemary. Hi, Rosemary. Where are you calling from? 
Havertown, Pennsylvania. Okay. How can we help you today? Well, I have a question about hickory nuts. Okay. A friend and I were out walking, and we were on a wooded trail. There were loads of hickory nut trees, and they had dropped tons of nuts. And I knew that they have a great flavor, so we filled our pockets. There were so many nuts, I figured the squirrels would still have plenty and brought them home. I spent two hours <laughs> getting a half a cup of tiny bits of nut meat and wondered if there wasn't a better approach than what I was trying, hammer and uh, dental pick. When did you pick them up? How recently? Late October. And it looked like they had just dropped? Uh, some of them were still in their casing. Most mm-hmm. of them were not. They mm-hmm. were Mostly they were clean still. They were out of the husk already. Okay. And then you have to get off the outer part. And there are these great nutcrackers. Uh, uh-huh. One of them is a Texan York nut sheller. And also, I think it's a good idea before you crack them to throw them into a pot and let them float, see which ones float. Those are usually the ones that are not so good. Uh-huh. And then you go with the rest of them. Now I'm going to throw it to Chris. Chris probably is like, oh, I do this all well, the time. Well, actually, in my property in Vermont, I have lots of shagbark hickory trees. When I grew up, we always had big bowls of nuts and stuff and had wonderful nutcrackers around. But you have to get the right device because these these are very small and nasty to get the meat out. It's just very tough. That's what I found. Either go, it's for the squirrels, it's for the deer, but otherwise you have to go buy some sort of gadget. Fancy nutcracker. Yeah, because you know, using the nut pick and a hammer is, as you said, half an hour hour to get uh, a half a cup is going to take you time. But they do taste great, but um, you're going to have to up the ante on the uh, the tool, the gadget. Right. This is one time to get yeah, the right, no, right I tool. I know why they're so expensive to buy shelled. Well, I'm going to go check this one out, the Texan York Nut Sheller. Rosemary, hopefully yeah. that's a little bit helpful. It is. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for calling. Okay, great thank call. you. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Kelly, and here's my tip. If you have kids, then you know that no one in the house wants to eat what's affectionately referred to as the butt of the bread or the very last slice. I have two things in order to not waste it. One, I will throw it into a bag of brown sugar, and it wicks away moisture, keeps the brown sugar the right texture, and prevents it from becoming a hard block. The second thing I will do with it is throw it into a food processor, grind it up, and throw that into the freezer, and I have fresh breadcrumbs. So that's my tip. By the way, if you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's mad French food scientist Alex Inews. Alex, how are you? I'm good. How are you? You sound energetic and full of surprises. Uh, What's on your mind? Yeah, I sound energetic, but in fact, I have a problem. I'm sorry to lower the the vibe straight away. (laughs) I want to confess about something. Uh Uh-oh. I'm obsessed with instant ramen. Give me one reason you're obsessed with bad packaged instant ramen noodles. Well, well, I've got plenty. (laughs) First of all, they are helping you saving on time, and then they are helping saving some money. Because it's 30 cents a package. Now, I've got a package with me. Can I open it? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so inside, 
you've got seasoning powder, then you've got a flavoring oil, and then you've got dried pre-cooked noodles. Now, I know it's bad for me, and in terms of salt, just one package gives me two times the salt I need in a day. <laughs> it's not great. No, <laughs> not great. great. And in terms of fat, you can't believe this. One package of instant ramen is 25% fat, which is very weird if you ask me, because where is this coming from? You, you, you've got a seasoning packet, you've got a bit of oil, but it can't be like 25% fat. I made an investigation and I found out it comes from the process of drying the noodles themselves. Huh. Instead of just drying noodles, they deep fry them. That's the way oh, they get the moisture out. I see. Anyway, you, you, you get the picture. I'm obsessed. It's very bad for me. I need to correct this. So I thought it's an easy fix. I just need to make homemade instant ramen noodles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds easy. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so... Ramen noodles, they have a very specific texture. They are chewy, they are springy, they are slippery, and they have a, a slight yellow tint to them. And all of this is due to one thing, alkali water. So basically, I needed something to raise up the pH value uh, of my ramen dough. You could use baking soda for this, but it's not alkali enough. So I had another technique. I baked baking soda in the oven, <laughs> which turns sodium bicarbonate into sodium carbonate, which is way more powerful. In terms of pH, uh, this is standing at 10 or 11, where bicarb is just at 8. <laughs> uh, and so I had all the ingredients displayed in front of me, water, wheat, salt, and sodium carbonate. Now, Basically, the process is extremely simple when you want to make ramen noodles. You mix everything in. It's a very dry dough. The hydration is, is around 35 to 38%. So the dough is very stiff. But if you use uh, your feet, that's one thing that works very well. Uh, have you ever done that, Christopher? It's, it's a fun thing to do. Instead of kneading with your hands... You jump up and down on it, right? Exactly. You place everything in a plastic bag and you jump up and down on it. It's very fun. Once it's flat and smooth, you pass it through a pasta machine. Now, at the end of this process, I got myself about one, two kilos of ramen noodles. And that's great. But remember my initial challenge. I needed to make instant ramen noodles. So how do you do this? But don't ask me. I have. I go and buy it. I don't know what. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so I, I I did what I usually do in these cases. I just went on YouTube, and I watched industrial making instant ramen noodles. And both of them were deep frying them. But I found some some factory in Japan that were just hair drying them in a tunnel. So I made a wind tunnel inside my own studio and I let the whole thing dry all the noodles inside the tunnel for about three to four hours. At the end of that, I made about, I would say, 20 nests of uh, dried ramen noodles <laughs> and I was very proud of this. The only problem is that 20 nests of noodles, that makes for like 10 days. So, so I thought if I wanted to answer the question, can you make instant ramen noodles at home? Well, to be honest, you can't. <laughs> I went against the very principle of instantness. 
I made the whole thing not practical. <laughs> and, and so it's kind of a bummer, to be honest. But it also taught me something very important about ramen. It's not that hard to make. Another way to do this would just be to not making instant ramen noodles, but just making ramen noodles. And once they are ready, you just freeze them. Huh. And that, that makes for, a, for an alternative to instant ramen noodles. And it takes about the same amount of time as opening an instant package of, of ramen noodles. But it's so much better for me. But being a suspicious person... I bet you still buy. I bet. Oh. I bet there's something about the package of oil and the package of salt. I hate you, Christopher. You like the flavor of the instant one. I know you do. Come on, be honest. Yes. Yeah. I'm. Yes. Okay. Honestly, yes. I knew it. I still buy some. <laughs> I get some in a drawer. And and whenever I make ramen myself, it's never. It's as never as high good. In salt, in right. fat. Right. So it's hard to get the same high from it. But I mean, to be honest, if, if it just reduces my consumption of instant ramen, that still is something, right? It's something, but, but you're basically an instant ramen addict. Uh, I am. So you, what, you, what you really need to do is be honest with yourself, right? Guilty. <laughs> Alex, I knows uh, you learned to make instant ramen at home, but you still like the quote-unquote real thing. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much. That was YouTube host Alex I News. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. Alex I News likes to make homemade ramen noodles. But of course, Alex is not the first cook to make popular junk foods from scratch, including Stella Parks, who reverse engineered Fig Newtons, or Claire Saffitz from Bon Appetit, who bakes up her own Twinkies. The problem is that a homemade Twinkie or a cup of ramen is not the real thing. The real thing is an industrial product. It's magic. It's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. After all, it takes an Oompa Loompa to make the real thing. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. You can find all of our recipes, watch the new season of our TV show, or order our latest cookbook, The New Rules, recipes that will change the way you cook. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories. And thanks, of course, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Claff, And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.